Welcome to At The Source, a podcast full of food stories. I'm your host, food blogger and all-round greedy guts, Alex Ryder. My guest for this episode is Tim Mead. He's the owner of Yo Valley, a family farming business specialising in organic dairy and based just a stone's throw from here in Somerset. I'm sure you've all tried their yogurts, milk and butter, or at least heard the name. Tim's parents started the business in 1974 when they began making yogurt with the milk produced by their dairy cows. After Tim's father died in a tragic farming accident, he took over the business and since 1990 has been growing it into the well-known brand it is today. Yo Valley is the largest organic brand in the UK and Tim and his team are passionate about regenerative farming and fighting climate change with sustainability at the heart of everything they do. I'm releasing this episode on World Soil Day, 5th of December, for two reasons. One, World Soil Day exists to raise awareness of the importance soil plays in biodiversity, healthy ecosystems and protecting wildlife. And two, because despite Yo Valley being a dairy brand, Tim is passionate about soil biodiversity and it's a topic we cover a lot during this episode. Organic is something close to my own heart and organic food features heavily on my food blog. So this is a chat I've been really looking forward to. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much, Alex, for inviting me to have a chat with you. No, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we were just talking, weren't we, before I pressed record, that one of the benefits of recording remotely during this pandemic has been that I've been able to talk with people kind of a little bit further afield. So it seems really strange to be doing this one remotely when you're literally just up the road from me. Absolutely. I think, I think it was about 10 miles away, isn't it? Yeah. I think if I open the window, I might might just be able to hear you, but it is a shame because uh, I could have come up to the farm and had a, a proper look around, but uh, it's not to be. So here we are recording remotely. So, yeah. Yeah, no, so we're, we're sending you all our water. So all the water comes out the Mendix on this side, on this side, goes into Blagdon Lake, which is um, what the River Yo ah. flows through. And we farm on the south shore of the lake. Um, and then they pump all the water to, um, to Bristol. So um, <laughs> hopefully by farming organically, we're, we're helping and making sure that you get cleaner and more pure water for the, for the, for the population of Bristol. Brilliant. And funnily enough, I actually work for Bristol Water, so Ooh. there you go. It's, it's come full circle. <laughs> oh, can you get me a cut price fishing boat? Because um, having lived on the edge of Blagdon Lake for the for all of my life, um, occasionally, twice a year, I sort of get tempted to go fishing because it's sort of there. But um, oh. never managed to really catch anything. Oh, well, I don't work in the fisheries team, but you never know. <laughs> I'm going to go right back to the beginning with my first question. So. Tell me about your parents and how they decided to start making and selling yogurt. Well, my parents got married when they were quite young, sort of 20 and 21. And then a year after that, they um, took out a mortgage with the NFU and bought the farm here at Holt Farm on the edge of Blagdon Lake. Um, you know, the River Yeo flows through the lake. And I think it became apparent to my father that just being one of 150,000 dairy farmers was not going to enable him to sort of, you know, pay the bills, look after his family, you know, have the holidays or whatever that he aspired to. Um, and here we are 60 years later, and there's probably only 10,000 dairy farmers left. So being one of, you know, 150,000, his decision was obviously the right one because, you know, there's 140,000 dairy farmers who are no longer dairy farming because of, um, you know, just the way that things have got bigger or changed or consolidated in, in the same way as they have in other parts of, you know, other parts of the, the, the high street. So his decision to make yogurt was actually quite 
forward thinking really yeah well definitely because <laughs> there was a lot of a lot of people so some of i mean you know we farm in the valley here and on top of the mendips um at a place called yoxter um which is literally just sits atop of cheddar gorge so somerset you know and cheddar cheese and cider go hand in hand really and i guess you know when we started making yogurt all those sort of 50 years ago um a lot of people in the vicinity would have gone, well, not having that stuff, it's sort of soured milk and where did that come from? And and that's, you know, that's just, it's about history. And, <laughs> you know, so in the UK, we consume a lot of the milk as liquid milk and we consume a lot as cheese. Um, in Southern Europe, where it's a lot hotter, they had to preserve their milk, you know, more than just putting a pint of milk on your doorstep. Mm. I didn't really think about the fact that 50 years ago, yogurt wasn't necessarily such a staple food. Well, it, it wasn't over here, but in France and places like that, it was a way of preserving the milk. And therefore, a lot of Southern European countries consume a lot more of their dairy products in the form of cheese and yogurt, as opposed to, you know, in Britain, where sort of, you know, pints of milk and on your cornflakes and in your tea. And, and that's so generally we consume our dairy in a different way to the sort of southern Europeans. And I presume that's to do with the weather, is it? It's to do with it being warmer and, and perhaps not being able to keep it fresh as long. Absolutely. It's it's the weather, you know, you put a pint of milk on doorstep in, you know, in Nice or somewhere like that, and it's probably gone off by the time you, you get home to pick it up. Mm. Um, pint of yogurt. <laughs> you get a pint of yogurt. Don't tell that, otherwise everyone would be making it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also it's about density. You know, so, you know, we've 10 million people in, 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 in London. And so the density of our big populations meant that the milkman could do his rounds and deliver enough milk onto doorsteps. So um, so two things. One is the weather. Secondly, the density of the population. The density of the population, it makes it more, you know, made it possible for people to deliver milk on the doorstep. That's fascinating. So why did they choose to produce organic yogurt as opposed to non-organic? So the Soil Association started in 1946 after the, the, the Second World War when it became apparent that, you know, to get ourselves out of rationing across Europe, we were adopting a quite a sort of industrialised agricultural process. Artificial fertilisers were being sort of produced, you know, all across Europe to boost productivity because, you know, the whole of Europe was in a rationing situation. And that was obviously, you know, the choice to do that was was imperative. The choice to continue to do that um, once we'd got ourselves back back with um, no food rationing was something that just got perpetuated. And I guess the choice that we had to try and back organic farming was one of our concern that it wasn't necessarily the right way to go and that we wanted to make a choice of building fertility through using the sun's energy as opposed to you know building fertility by buying it in from oil-based fertilizer that's just a fundamental you know do you think that's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do and it just felt that however many millions of years before that artificial fertilizer wasn't required or synthetic pesticides to feed the world therefore we didn't see why that should be, you know, we should change radically from the way we produce food for thousands of years. I mean, it, it does make sense. And I've heard people talk about how difficult it is to convert a farm 
too organic. And actually, um, Yo Valley is in quite a unique situation in that you've never had to go through that conversion process because you you took the decision to to do it that way right from the start, which I think is quite interesting. Well, we have been through a well, we sort of have been through a conversion ah, process because okay. we bought farms along the way and converted them. And at the moment, we're just about at the end of converting another farm, which we bought two years ago. So it's a two-year conversion. So Hazel Manor Farm, which is probably a very large wood sitting above Compton Martin, um, is currently in a conversion process. Because if you buy any land and it's not organic, then you have to go through the conversion process. And is that process quite quite difficult? Because I've heard, um, this is actually going to lead on to another question that I wanted to ask later on, but certainly the soil association organic status I've heard is is quite stringent and quite difficult to actually uh, kind of, what am I trying to say? It's quite stringent. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, there are a set of rules um, and it says you can't use artificial fertilizer, you can't use pesticides, chemical synthetic fertilizers, synthetic sprays and things like that. So I would sort of tend to slightly disagree. I don't so the rules are quite high, but they're not that hard to adhere to, especially if you're, you know, a grass-based farming. So if you're into beef or sheep or dairy, you know, grass is not, you know, grass and clover build their own fertility. Whereas if you're growing oats in a field year after year or barley in a field year after year or grains in a field year after year you've got nothing to build the fertility and therefore you have you know as an organic cereal farmer it's really hard to do that if you don't have grass and animals in the system to help make the soil healthy and to build the fertility for you to you know crop your your cereals and presumably that's because you're growing the same crop every year and it's pulling all the nutrients out. Yes, I mean, so in, in terms of the decision tree of what is good and what is bad, you know, at Yo Valley, we have a very simple sort of thing about food. The number one choice is, you know, and um, they just, the Soil Association held the Peter Melcher Memorial Lecture, and I think, I'm not quite sure exactly what the title was, is ultra-processed food having stolen our the health of the nation. So the number one choice we, we try and make as a business is never to really get into ultra-processed food mm-hmm. um, because that is, you know, the least healthiest food that you possibly can have. And after you've made the decision of going for natural food and not ultra-processed food, the decision we try and encourage people to look at is – where are the calories coming from that? Is it, is it, are the calories coming from the sun's energy and organic rotations? Or is it coming from, you know, bags of fertilizer, which have been, you know, produced, generating huge amounts of oil and gas? Um, so our decision tree is quite simple, ultra processed or natural. If it's natural, then is it oil based or is it renewable energy based? And then when you get down to that, then you know, it comes down to personal preference and choice as to what unultra processed and renewable energy based food you want to consume in your diet. I feel like I'm I'm asking you loads of questions about organic now, and I promise we will talk about your products as well. But I wonder if you know how carefully the un- organic 
label is monitored around the world because I know, for example, there's been loads over the last year or so around uh, food standards, especially with America and Brexit. Is organic there comparable to organic here? Is it a comparable level uh, or status that you can achieve through the practices worldwide or does it vary generally the principles are the same everywhere you're not you know you're not an oil-based food production thing there will be different countries have got different nuances and even in the same country there'll be things that are produced to different standards so the big the big one is that the soil association have a sort of slightly higher standard for organic eggs i believe than the european standard and that's because they feel strongly about the size of the, the flocks, et cetera, et cetera. So there are differences in within countries, within continents, within the world. But the general thing is, is that, you know, if you're a regenerative organic farmer, okay, then the set of principles are that you're using the sun's energy to grow your crops, that you're valuing the soil that you're using to grow the crops and looking after that in terms of nutrients and the health of the soil. Um, so that principle is the same wherever you are, but you know the differences between continents on organic standards is 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 minute compared to the differences between monoculture crops using artificial fertilizer being dosed with chemicals all the time. Yeah, so the choices are very stark, you know, between organic and the monoculture sort of world. Mm. Mm. I read, um, I think it was last year, and I appreciate it's quite an old book now, but I read Farmageddon by Philip Limbury. Uh, and it was just kind of, I don't know if you've read that book, but it was quite shocking to read about, especially in America with some of the monoculture, the big kind of chicken farms and, and things like that. And I think that was partially one of the reasons that I chose to move to an organic diet. But I think it's nice to know that if you're buying a piece of meat or eggs or dairy in the UK that buying that having that organic stamp is going to be indicative of something just as 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 good if you're in Spain or America or um Antarctica or wherever you are so that is that is good to hear so going back a couple of hundred 300 years or so there was an agricultural revolution which meant that people move you know we moved as a society from being subsistence farmers you know whether it was eating deer and rabbits and the, the crops that the land gave you, the agricultural revolution meant that we started rotating crops and building fertility so we could grow more grain. And therefore, that allowed the population to grow, but it also allowed people to move into cities because before, we, before there was a food production system, you really couldn't live into a city because there would be no food. So until farmers had perfected the system of being able to produce more than they need for themselves, then the ability of society to to grow into bigger conurbations which was just not there. So the agricultural revolution was a distinctive time in history. Um, and then there was an industrial revolution. Um, and that was the, you know, where more and more people would leave the land because they didn't need to grow their own food because the farmers had developed ways of producing the food and therefore they could live in cities and therefore produce things in mills and all that sort of stuff. And what we've sort of done is industrialized farming, which is everything that we stand against. Um, 
And so it is the industrialized farming, from my point of view, as a grass-based organic farmer who's got beef, sheep, and lamb, the the, the, the monocropping of the soya and the maize, etc., in, in South America or China or America, to, to basically feed mass chicken and pork production is industrialization of farming. And yeah, there's a lot more evidence coming out now that the production of mass-produced chicken and pork is the thing that is causing, driving the monoculture production of all the, that is destroying all the fields and the land and the soil. And actually, we can move back to a grass-based system, okay, where you're using, you know, grass and the fertility from the clovers to build the crops. Um, But of course, if you're doing that, then you've got to have animals that can actually eat grass. And therefore, you know, you get, you know, in our view, you get back to the point when, you know, grass-fed beef, lamb and dairy is an integral part in being able to look after soil and to build soil. And that if we're to eat less meat in the future, it is the mass-produced pork and chicken that is, A, not particularly healthy because of its mass production, um, and B, is what's driving the environmental issues um, back on you know, the monoculture farms. Mm-hmm. So in your mind, what needs to change? Um, I guess not only for organic food to be widely accessible to kind of larger populations than it is now, um, I guess that's around things like cost and availability, but also just to to start to turn the clock back on the damage that we have done to the soil and with monoculture. I appreciate that is an absolutely huge question. I don't think so. I think we just got to start, you know, loads of people are making choices on the cars that they're driving. You know, diesel cars are going to be a thing of the past. You know, the government are trying to fast track the, the, the banning of the sale of diesel and petrol cars by another 10 years at the moment. So the choices we're making on that is electric okay when we're buying our electricity lots and lots of people are going making the choice and going do you know what i want you know i want my electricity from wind or solar i don't want it from coal or gas or oil and in and in your food it's, it's just exactly the same choice do you want food that is produced using oil and gas energy or do you want food that is produced using the sun's energy and therefore returning to organic regenerative agriculture just seems the most sensible thing. The Rodell Institute in America, um, although they've been challenged on this quite a bit, are saying that we can we can sequester, i.e. store, all of the world's CO2 emissions in soil every year if the whole of the world adopts a regenerative organic agriculture approach. Because, you know, soil is the you know, in, in soil, we are actually storing and looking after four or five times more carbon than there is in the atmosphere, three or four times more carbon than there is in all the trees and plants on the surface of the world. So, you know, we wander around the world looking at all the trees and the plants and the, the, the skies all around us. And actually, the most important weapon we have in reversing climate change is what we're standing on. Mm. You know, it's just it's it's quite difficult to see because it's under your feet. Um, you know, so we have to we have to weaponize soil to start to reverse climate change. Um, and actually, we're never going to be in a position where our activities and our movements on the planet as a, as 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 a world don't have a footprint. And therefore, finding things that we can 
that can lock up carbon and store it for hundreds of years, okay, is the opportunity of that is has got to be explored because, you know, we're not going to reduce all of our footprints everywhere. And therefore, to re- start reversing climate change, we need to start to be able to take carbon out of the atmosphere and lock it up into soil, which is exactly what organic farmers do on a daily basis, mm-hmm. year in, year out. Um, and that is, you know, so that's the simple answer. The solution is to change the world's food production to regenerative organic farming. It does sound nice and simple when, when you put it like that. <laughs> and this is, this, is, this is when you get your money. This is, this is when you get your pound of flesh because, you know, people like me will then start sort of ranting away about, you know, <laughs> well, well, who's controlling the agenda? Is it the, is it the big pharmaceutical companies who are selling all the sprays and the pesticides? You know, Monsanto get a load of bad press because mm. they've designed, you know, soya beans that – genetically modified that you've got to buy their sprays you can you can only buy their the seeds from companies like that you know so lots of people have got a vested interest in making lots of money mm-hmm. out of providing farmers with artificial fertilizers sprays pesticides etc cetera, etc cetera. and actually when it comes to it an organic farmer because he's not paying out those bills he's using the sun's energy and therefore who can make money out of that not many corporations have managed to patent the sun ray yet, although I'm sure I'm sure a few of them will be trying. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is as with so many things, when there is actually at the heart of a quite a simple solution in theory, often comes down to economics and government and and big corporations, which is a real shame. It is, and the the, the heartening thing at the moment is that there are a lot of a lot of big corporations, and I have to say, you know, America comes in for a whole load of shit. Oh, sorry, a whole load of you know gets thrown at the Americans about their chlorinated chicken and their whatever. Proportionately, they have a much bigger organic sector than we do in the UK. The reason for that possibly could be that they've got a lot lower standards on the one hand and therefore consumers are actually voting and saying i don't want the lower standard stuff and that's why their organic farming is um is 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 bigger than it is over here that's really interesting to hear actually um because i think you know we do hear what often what the media wants us to hear and that's refreshing and nice to hear actually you know it isn't just all chlorinated chicken and um bleached this and all of that but the trouble is the same could happen over here the lower the lower you allow standards to go and the more dangerous the food and the more unhealthy it is the more a few people will vote with their wallets and their feet and say i'm not going to have that you know the 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 french apparently in terms of ultra processed food consume about 15 percent of their diet in the uk we're consuming about 55 percent of our diet as ultra processed food wow and the ultra processing food allows food companies to hide the cost of the ingredients to turn them into something that we don't recognize as as, as a basic food and therefore price comparisons etc etc are very very difficult um whereas if you got a pound of potatoes in shop number one and pound of potatoes in shop number two it's very apparent you know, if one is more expensive. But if you produce an ultra-processed something in massive amounts of packaging and you don't know quite know how much of what ingredient is in there, then, um, you know, you, you know, it's very difficult to judge. And therefore, the ability to take make more money out of the, our consumers is by 
hiding the true cost and ultra processing something. But to find, you know, so it's not surprising that the French are at fifteen percent because they're probably they probably like the taste of their, you know, I don't know whatever you call it, acorn grown pork, and you know, they're much more of a. Or they were, although I think we're catching them up. They're much more of a sort of foodie culture, and they're much more closer related to 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 the land. There's a lot more people involved in agriculture in France per percentage of population than there is in the UK. It's clear that you are super passionate about this, and and I love hearing uh, your opinions and, and everything you're saying. And I think it's fair to say that Yo Valley are something of an advocate for organic food. Uh, I wanted to just shift the conversation a little bit and talk to you about your advertising and your marketing. So I remember, and I'm sure many of my listeners will, uh, your wrapping farmers TV advert that kind of, I think, catapulted Yo Valley into becoming the kind of household brand that you are now. And then obviously after the Wrapping Farmers, you had the boy band, um, The Churned. That must have been quite a first for an organic farm brand to be to be doing that and also to do quite kind of bold and fun adverts. I uh, just wanted you to kind of tell me a bit about that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a, I nearly had a panic attack there because when you said I'd like to hear, I thought you were going to ask me to bloody, to bloody sing it. Um, <laughs> Which is absolutely you can if you not going to happen. Um, all, my, all my family will vouch that I'm the most musically illiterate person in the whole planet. Um, and therefore, we're lucky to be um, not having me do that. So when we started out 25, 26 years ago with the, with the sort of the real launch of the Yo Valley dairy brand, we got together with a group of organic dairy farmers um, through a cooperative called Onsco, the Organic Milk Supply Cooperative. And... We had a vision to, you know, there was only six farmers. There was only seven, eight million litres of milk. So we had a, we had a vision to grow that, to be 10% of, you know, British dairy farming. And the reason for that vision was that it would be brilliant to secure the knowledge of how this farming works, just in case the experiment with pouring chemicals on the ground turns out to be a sort of slightly misjudged one, which obviously it is. But eventually, when we get to the point and realise that, if we've lost all of the methods and the knowledge of how to do things without the chemicals and the sprays and the pesticides, um, then we'd be pretty stuffed. So we, we started a journey, and 10% is, in, in the UK terms, is about a billion litres. And after 25 years, we're halfway there. There's probably 400 to 500 organic dairy farmers up from the six six original farmers um, 26 years ago. And that was like really important. And for some reason, you know, I would say sort of milk, milk, sweat and tears. We managed to get our business to a point of, you know, we had a lot of lucky breaks. There was lots of people worked very hard and very dedicated to producing the products that we do. We found ourselves in a position that we're probably the largest organic brand. And, you know, for a bunch of organic dairy farmers from Somerset whose marketing experience is zilch, that's quite a sort of daunting position to find yourself because suddenly you've gone from being, you, know, you hadn't even started 25, 27 years ago, to being out in front of the pack and people look to you to, you know, to show the way. And there's no textbook. You can't pick up the, how do you create an organic market in, well, it's never really been done before. So, um the adverts were our way of trying to raise the awareness of, of our brand in a way that just didn't get lost in the 
billions of pounds that get spent on marketing all products every year. And therefore, we wanted to show people that we were a real place. So it, it all got filmed down in the farm here on the edge of Blankton Lake in Somerset. You know, we wanted to demonstrate that the products we produce are nutritious and healthy. And we wanted to bring in the, the concept that actually this is a, you know, we are, you know, we are a potential solution to climate change because of the way we farm and the way we put carbon in the soil. How the hell do you communicate all those things to a bunch of people? And then we thought, you can't do that in your classic 15 second or 30 second ad. So we basically got into the, the concept of um, making um, songs about it, which you know, everybody thoroughly enjoyed it and everybody remembers them. So that was all good fun. The, uh, the hunky boy band. Hunky farmers. <laughs> yeah, I've grown. I've grown up since then. That happened. <laughs> that was why I look a bit older now. Were you not tempted to be in the boy band yourself as a kind of cameo? I was. Oh, were you really? No, of course not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No. <laughs> I was thinking. Oh, I wonder which one you were. <laughs> no, I'm fat. I'm fat and happy. Oh, like me. That's the best way to be. <laughs> You've kind of answered my next question, really, which was whether or not you'd made a conscious decision at that time to become this kind of spokes brand. But I think whether you'd made that decision or not, it's kind of happened. You know, as you say, there are triple, quadruple, many, many more organic farms and brands available in the supermarket now. But Yo Valley is still that that one, I think, that is is best known and I think you made it accessible to, you know, I think even in um, the last few years, you can now go into the dairy aisle in in Sainsbury's and you'll see quite a few different organic things, whereas before it was probably just Yo Valley, uh, possibly some of the own brand stuff, if that particular supermarket had it. Now you're starting to see a few other different things there as well. And and, and we've always been, you know, our our true north is, is to try and get one in 10 dairy farmers or 10% of milk production in the UK being organic. And to do that, we have to democratise the, the availability of our products. And that's really difficult because, you know, the farmers get paid more than they do for conventional milk, and therefore that has to flow through the chain to the, um, to the consumer. But what we try and do is, by being the most efficient manufacturer we possibly can be, by, you know, keeping our costs tight, we would like to think that in the yogurt sector and all of our products that we are delivering them at an affordable price, not just for a few, but for, for everybody. Because it's not it's not going to work unless we all adopt food from a regenerative organic basis. And therefore, you know, there are some there are some brands that are out there that are basically just targeting the very, very top consumers. Um, in terms of their ability to pay. And what Yo Valley have always done and always will do is basically make our products available at the most competitive price that we can afford to do. Bearing in mind, we've got to pay 1,500 people and run lorries and factories and do all the things and invest in equipment and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's the the key really is, is as much as everything that we've discussed on this podcast is important, if organic can't be easily accessible to people on a lower income, then it's always going to be very difficult for that shift to take place because you know I'm I'm very aware that I am in quite a privileged position that I can go to the supermarket and choose to buy organic butter rather than 
Tesco value butter, but it's all about making it accessible and for people at all ends of the financial ladder, <laughs> I guess. I'm not sure what the right phrase is there, to be able to make that choice in the food that they put into their trolley. Yes, and I think it's 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 really difficult, isn't it? Because you get into some pretty tricky areas and can get yourself into some exceedingly hot water when discussing the affordability of food or you know, at a time when more and more people are you know, relying on food handouts and food parcels, etc., to basically be preaching that people should be consuming organic products, um, you've got to be very careful. But I go back to the very, very beginning. Um, it's about the, the choice of ultra-processed or natural food. And I think there's a definite correlation that you're, you know, that you're paying more for calories in ultra-processed food i.e. What, what we need to survive, than you are in, in, in natural products. We've got ourselves to a completely perverse situation in this country where people pay more for food with less calories. So that is almost obscene um, because what that is actually saying is because you go back to the post-war bit and we just didn't have enough calories, okay? Because we, through industrial farming, have been able to produce calories at a rate and a level, okay, that far exceeds our, our requirements, that now people are paying for food to have calories taken out, which is a bit bit bizarre, really. So it's, it's about that choice between ultra-processed and natural food. Mm. And this is where, as a dairy farmer, I also get myself into huge amounts of hot water because, you know, how anybody can think that shipping two almonds in a litre carton of milk from halfway around the world where water is in short supply in California, and which is where they grow most of the almonds, and then processing it to a level and then selling it at a, at a, at a, at a price that's probably three or four times the equivalent calories that you would get from from milk produced from grass in, 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 in Britain, how anybody can think that that is a half sensible idea, you know, I just don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've written about this on my blog, actually, because in February, my partner did the vegan, well, the veganuary, but he did it in February, strangely. Um, and I wrote about the idea of going plant-based as an environmental move is actually fraught um, with difficulty in itself. And this probably isn't the the time and place for us to talk about it, but very quickly, you know, a lot of the kind of soy-based meat alternative products that you find on the market they have no information on the packs about whether that soy was sustainably farmed, where it was grown. Uh, a lot of them do, which is really good and really important. But you almost get to the point where you wonder, unless you're really reading up on this stuff and you really know what you're doing, it's actually quite difficult to know whether you're actually making a positive impact or not. Because if you're choosing to eat something that has been grown using crops in South America and it's been flown across the UK and they've, they've had to ship the water in. And it gets to the point when you think actually an organic um, chicken breast or a, a packet of organic eggs is, is actually from the shop selling stuff from the farm down the road may well be actually a lot better for the planet. And that, you know, it is, it's a huge area and you can argue you know, you could argue till the cows come home on this one. And there are lots of opinions and lots of thoughts out there. I think it's, it's a complicated 
it's a complicated thing. Yeah, no, and, and you know, I mean, you, you know, with the plant-based dairy alternatives, you just got to look and see who owns the companies. Do you totally trust the companies that have been filling the world with sugary fizzy drinks for the last fifty years? You know, who now go on and own all the all the companies that are promoting these products? I mean, you know, then, you know, sometimes you know you sort of you know despair. I mean. I personally, I love vegetables. I'm growing sprouts for Christmas. Um, I love all sorts of different vegetables. We've got vegetable patch. Um, and therefore, when somebody says to me, well, we need to eat a more of a plant-based diet, I'm thinking, brilliant. Cabbages, you know, lettuces, tomatoes, you know, sprouts, onions, all the things that you can you can grow and eat that are really healthy, okay? Um, so I've got absolutely nothing again against oats in the slightest i have porridge probably two or three times a week you know i have cheese on my oat crackers you know i've got absolutely nothing against almonds i like almonds you know toasted with a bit of salt and pint of lager or something and that's you know you you can't get any better but all of these areas you know are taken to extreme they're you know the coconut stuff i mean for god's sake they're training monkeys to go up coconut trees and harvest the coconuts because the western world suddenly thinks coconuts are it the pressure it puts on the countries that are producing them and the standards and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, hazelnuts have got a massive issue with slave labor, haven't they? You know, you try and do anything in excess and therefore lots of people talk about biodiversity. Well, biodiversity comes from diets. I mean, if we all had the same diet in the world, then the human species will have have lost a lot of its biodiversity. You know, the fact that you can have people in one part of the world who's diet is mainly fish or something and then you've got other people who eat nuts and seeds and other people us guys from western europe whose ability to grow huge amounts of grass have got a huge dairy culture from from ireland to britain to northern france to germany to belgium to to denmark to holland all these countries because it naturally grows it's what we've naturally developed for and to take us in isolation and not allow there to be biodiversity in the human species as well as in the plants that we grow, you know. So people have got to look to see what they're, where they live and what that can provide for them. Um, Maybe that's part of my decision tree. It's like, you know, ultra-processed, non-ultra, you know, natural. Oil, not soil. You know, soil, not oil. And then it's like, is it it local or is it regional? And local doesn't have to be, you know, your, your farm shop 10 miles away. Local can be Northern Europe versus bringing in grapes or whatever from Chile or wherever mm. all the grapes come from. I think it's Chile. <laughs> I think it's Chile. So the basic decision, you know, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, the basic decision trees and the choices we make will determine our footprint on this world, and it will determine whether the world has got enough, you know, people doing the right choices to allow it to to, to thrive. Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When we when we talk about it here, <laughs> it, it, it does. But so I think there was a, there was a fact, you know. And obviously nowadays everybody goes, "Oh, I found this fact out the other day." And whether it's a fact that's true or not, I got absolutely no idea. But somebody told me that if you take the wealth of the world, ten percent of the wealth of the world is based upon machines land, buildings, physical stuff, tangible assets. And 90% of the world is based on intangible assets, which is the perception, the perception of growth or the perception of something doing very well. And if, if the world is 
determined on the perception of growth, then I think we're pretty screwed because the one thing we do know is that there is a finite amount of growth that can happen. So if you look at the valuations, you know, if, you, if you go back to the, the meat alternatives, the valuations of all of those companies, which loads of people with loads of money have backed, the valuation of all of those are eye-wateringly high, but they're high purely not for the amount of money that they're turning over or the profits that they're making. Mm. They're high on the, on the potential that something may happen or the potential of growth, okay? So if 90% of our, our world-measured wealth is, is, is determined by the potential of growth and we know we're going to have to stop growing, you know, that's going to put ourselves in a very, very difficult position. And how do we transition from a growth agenda as a world to a stabilizing agenda? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope that that's true because it's really interesting. I mean, I say I hope it's, it's not great, but it's interesting all the same. I've just got a few last few questions. Um, but before I ask you them, uh, we haven't actually spoken that much about Yo Valley. It's been absolutely fascinating, by the way, but is there anything that you would really like to talk about Yo Valley itself? So, so Yo Valley, all we want to do is be a real place. So we love to invite people to come and see what we do so people can judge us. So they can, they can come to the garden, they can come to the HQ, they can come on Demi cooking demonstrations you know we even have a festival called valley fest overlooking chew valley lake in conjunction with a guy called luke hazel and if anybody wants to do anything for their christmas present or whatever buying somebody a pair of tickets to valley fest next door i think it's the first weekend of august is possibly because i think there is going to be a pent-up party mood at some point that absolutely explodes and i'm really hoping really hoping that we get to Valley Fest this year um, or next year in August. We had to cancel it this year and we did a virtual Valley Fest. Um, but, you know, we just want people to come and see what we do, how we can produce healthy food, how the soil is the king. If there are any marketeers out there who can tell us how to make soil sexy, how to make people understand that what we're standing on is actually the key to everything, then please, please give me a phone call. Um, but um, no, so, so Yo Valley, you know, nature is at the heart of what we do, real place, healthy and sustainable. And it's, it really is that basically simple. Um, the difficult thing is then, you know, communicating and starting conversations with people so that they, um, they go, yeah, you know, I've made the choice on my electricity, my car. I'm now going to make a choice on go through that decision tree on 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 what I what I what I feed myself with. And also during this lockdown, I mean, we've got a, a grab and yoga. So the Yo Valley headquarters, which is normally a restaurant, obviously has been shut. But as a local community initiative, we are on Tuesdays and Thursdays. People can turn up and they can buy their. You know, so we produce a family of dairy products. You know, we've probably got everything that everybody needs in their whole dairy requirement. We've got milk, the butter, the cheese, the yogurt, the cream, the ice cream, fantastic ice cream. Don't forget that. <laughs> and therefore, we're actually we're just introducing a waffle shop oh, that because we, amazing. people come and queue at the grab and yo, and I think they queue because they want to talk to people in the queue. 
<laughs> I think that is one of the real reasons why people want to come is they get to bring the kids from the local community. They walk up. So for the Christmas bit, we were going to do a Christmas market this year, but obviously things have been shutting down a bit more. But what we what what we've done is we've put a waffle hut right next door to the um, queue for the um, grab and yo, and that's just you know you've got to you know we're facing really difficult times and you get to the dark nights of winter and you've got to you know it's it's incumbent on us to try and give a bit of hope and a bit of joy um, in what is turning out to be a sort of pretty wet dank winter. With um, not much hope. Well, there is going to be hope, but at the moment, it seems that we've got a bit more snuggling down to do through the winter months before we can um, all get back to normal. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tim. It's been absolutely great to hear more about the work you do at Yo Valley, but also just generally have a real chat about organic and and kind of chew the cud. I think is that a Yo Valley type pun? I don't know, um, but it's it's been fab. So thank you so much, Alex. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Um, if anybody wants to come out to the valley next year to the organic garden and whatever, they can all just come out and see how we put nature first in everything we do. <laughs>